Welcome to Christian Medical and Dental Association's Chapel. We trust this message will encourage your walk with the Lord. Today we're going to talk about obedience. Um, that's been on my heart a lot lately. Because um, as we all know, obedience can be quite the challenge in our lives. Um, I'm reading through the Bible in a year. This is the third time I've done it um, with Chronological Bible. And um, just really digging into it. It's just exciting to me how much you learn every time you read and how much you can add to what you know. Um, but, you know, the Old Testament, um, when they used the word obedience, it was translated obey or to hear. Um, in the New Testament, there are several words to describe it, um, to hear or to listen in a state of submission. So they added something to that, and to trust. Um, and studying through scriptures, um, I've just started Joshua today, um, but in Exodus 19.5, it says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Throughout um, the Old Testament um, and in this time, Jesus um, or Moses was um, constantly talking to the Israelites, and God was talking to Moses about obeying, that you really need to obey um, his, com his covenant, or um, the blessings you receive if you obey, and then the curses you'll receive if you don't obey. And again and again, throughout these first five um, books of the Bible, that's woven in repeatedly, so, um, so crucial um, to our faith development. Um, and then when we read into Numbers 22, and this is where um, um, Balak sends for Balaam because the Israelites have made it through. They've been wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, and they're right across the Jordan from Jericho, um, right where they can look over to the promised land. And Balak sees them, and he's scared. He's heard all these things about these people. Um, so he sends for Balaam, who's this sort of spiritist or witchcraft kind of guy, um, to come and, and he asks him, Balak comes and he asks him to curse the Israelites. Um, and and he, he keeps saying he's not a believer, he doesn't know the Lord, but he, um, he is basically constricted by the Lord to say, I can only say what the Lord tells me to say. Um, and so three times Balak tries to get Balaam to come. He's like, well, curse him over here, and he won't curse him over here. How about over here? Will you curse him over here? And finally, Balak is talking to, um, to the Lord, and the Lord finally tells him um, that he can go. He said, if the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them. This is in verse 20 of Numbers 22. But only the word which I speak to you shall you do. So Balaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the leaders to Moab. But then in verse 22 it says, but God was angry because he went. Which is just so like, why? Why was God angry when he said, just said, go, you can go, just speak my word. Well, it's, if, you, if you look at what he was going for, he was going more because it was a chance to make some money and a chance to do something um, for himself. It wasn't being obedient with the right heart. And as you're studying through these scriptures again and again, God, God um, points out that he doesn't want just blind obedience. He wants an obedient heart. So if you're obeying with the wrong heart, that does not please God. And so that's when it's up to us to try and reflect and make sure that our heart is following what the Lord wants us to do. 
In Deuteronomy 15, he even talks about this when helping the poor. And so I'm reading this section, and it was talking about, um, it was talking about when um, every seventh year you're going to have this, this jubilee year where you're going to forgive everyone's debt. And as I'm reading this, my mind thinks, you know how you have these thoughts flit, but you're trying not to because you're reading, that, wow, I bet that sixth year I don't really think anyone would want to lend anybody any money, you know, in the year six because they're not going to have it long enough to pay you back. And then right after I read that, um, he answers that for us. He said, beware that there is no base thought in your heart saying the seventh year or the year of remission is near and your eye is hostile toward the poor brother and you give him nothing. I was like, how convicting is that? Like this thought flits in your head and all of a sudden he's like, I'm looking at your heart right there. So it's just interesting to me to see how much the Lord cares about not just our obedience but our heart while we're doing it. And the other thing about obedience in Joshua, I just read it this morning. We're on the same page, so we both read it together. But in Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So if we're following God, if we're being obedient to the path he is calling us to, it takes strength and it takes courage to do that. It's not easy. I've never had a calling from God that was like, oh, that sounds like a picnic in the park. Sure, I'll do that for you. His calling is hard and sometimes causes us to suffer for that. And when I've thought about this and been meditating on this for over a month now, and I knew chapel was coming, I was really like, I'm going to do obedience. I really think I need to do obedience. And how can I illustrate, how can I talk about this? Um, and like Paul, he, he changed how he spoke to the crowd he was speaking to. And since I'm speaking to CMDA, I thought I'd speak about my career. And I realized as I was planning this that I almost never talk about my career. I don't know if you do, Mike, but not very often. Because when you finally get away from that, the last thing you want to do is drag things back up. And I can tell you for the past week, I have not slept well at all because I've resurfaced all these memories that have been struggle over the 23 years I worked in the ER. But I wrote out a list, a few of them, and I crossed them off. And then I think of another one, and I put that on and crossed that off. So here's a few of the things as an ER physician that I've been through. Um, and every physician's different. Every specialty, I think, is different. I think my specialty is chaos and calamity and tragedy and, and not having a relationship with people while they're going through that. But one of the first things I thought about was when I was a second-year resident, and I, we had this transfer come in. He was flown in. I was working at a um, heart center, and he was basically Hail Mary Pass to our hospital. Um, he had end-stage cardiomyopathy at 32 years old and congestive heart failure. But he was the kindest, nicest, gentlest man. And so they send in the least experienced person to take care of him, the second-year resident who'd never worked there before. And I'm talking to him. He's on the stretcher, and he had the prettiest brown eyes. The brown eyes that are light, so almost like they're gold brown. Um, and I was looking right at him, and he was talking back with me and talking about how his wife was just so desperate to keep me that, like she sent me here, he I think had a lot of peace with the fact that he wasn't gonna be alive much longer. And as he's talking to me and looking at me, his eyes went blank. And he didn't speak anymore. And it took me a second to realize, and I looked up at the monitor and he had flatlined. 
while he was looking in my eyes, and I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but it's something that will stay with you. My first year out of residency, I was working in a small ER, and um, I took care of this beautiful, precious two-month-old baby girl. She was adorable, cute little chunky cheeks. The only thing that marred that was that she had all these bruises on her head, like huge yellow bruises over here, purple bruise here. She had hundreds of scratches on her arms and legs, like either a razor blade or a needle was scraped along her arms and legs, hundreds of them. She had cigarette burns on her and a bite mark, human bite mark right here. And she was dead, and we just called the FBI. There wasn't anything left to do for her. I took care of a woman who was doused in gasoline and set on fire by her boyfriend. And she came in by private vehicle, which is what sort of freaks you out, is that she either drove herself or someone drove her. I don't know. I didn't have time to ask. But so we had her stand her up, and we were trying to peel the clothes off her back. And the skin was coming off with it before we laid her down. She lived a month after that at a burn center. And then I took care of a 17-year-old kid who, trying to kill himself, drank a bottle of gun bluing, which is some sort of gun cleaner that's basically just acid, and just how much he must have suffered with that burning through, and blood was everywhere because it was just eating through his flesh. And then I took care of a woman on her way to work, 45, 50 years old, rear-ended by a tractor trailer who was probably texting but didn't even stop, didn't even hit the brakes. The problem was when it broke, when it hit her truck, it broke the fuel line and her truck caught on fire. So she's burning alive in this fire, and EMS comes in with a report, and I'm talking to the paramedic, who I knew very well because we'd worked together for so long, and she's telling me it was so hot that we couldn't even get to the door to open it. So people, bystanders, other, like, work vehicles, they were unloaded seven fire extinguishers on her, on the truck, trying to put it out, and they couldn't get it out. It took four minutes for the fire department to get there with the water, and they finally got the fire out enough that they could get her out of the truck. She came in talking but her feet looked like charcoal. There was not much flesh like you could see all her bones and all her tendons were charred. She was third degree all the way up. And um, I was talking to her, reassuring her that she was here. We were right there with her. They were going to take care of her, that we had called her husband. He was on the way. But I had to innovate her because the worst thing about that was the thermal heat of that was searing her lungs, and she was swelling already. And if we didn't get an airway in right away, we might not have been able to get one. <clears throat> And as I paused before he sedated her and paralyzed her to give her that, to intubate her, I thought about asking her, is there anything you'd like me to tell your husband? But I was afraid to scare her, so I chose not to. And she, we flew her off to the burn center. Her husband showed up long after she had already left, and I was able to sit down and talk with him. She had her both legs amputated the next day, and then she died less than two weeks later. And I always think about that reflect on that. Why didn't I ask her that? Maybe I should have asked her. I took care of a mother with breast cancer who was end stage and dying from it. And she was there with her mother. And she was so sweet and kind. And she was just there because she needed transfusion because it had progressed to the point where her bone marrow wasn't producing blood anymore. And they live on transfusions for a while. And so she knew she had needed transfusions and I'd ordered those for her. And because the hospital was full, we were going to hold her in the ER while we did that. And, um, so she was telling me that her husband was with her son, who was at Chower, Children's Health Care of Atlanta, dying of cancer. He had kidney cancer that he'd had for five years. I found out later, through a mutual friend on, who knew her on Facebook, 
that she died two weeks later, one day before her son died. So I reflected on that and thought, what a blessing that she was able to die before she heard her son die, and that maybe she was going to get to be there to greet her son in heaven. I took care of a 58-year-old woman who had a head and neck cancer. She was an alcoholic and estranged from her family. And she, um, by the time they found this cancer, she had chosen not to have anything done. It really was pretty much too late anyway. So pretty much how they die when they have these cancers growing in their head and neck is they eventually erode into a major blood vessel and they bleed out. So she'd had an episode of bleeding at home and called the ambulance. And um, they brought her in. And the nurse practitioner went to see her and said, no, you're going to have to go see her because this is going to happen sometime soon, and we need to know what she wants done. So I talked to her about that. Do you, want us, do you want us to do CPR? Do you want us to intubate? All those things we need to know before someone crashes in front of us. And um, she assured me she did not want anything extra done. And, um, and then she began to bleed. So I was helping. I was by her side holding her shoulder to hold her hair back out of the way while she was leaning forward, and blood's just pouring out of her. And I was rubbing her back and just telling her it's okay. We're right here. We're not going to leave you. We're right here with you. Because I took one death and dying class when I was in medical school. And it was a wonderful class, but they talk about always wanting to have hope for them. That it's important that these people still have hope. But when there's no hope left of living through whatever it is they're going through, they have one final hope, and that's that they don't die alone. So we stayed there with her. The ambulance crew was still in the room. We had just transferred her over, so we hadn't seen her for that long. But the nurses and I and the ambulance sent after that, she died in less than five minutes. Um, and after that, through the rest, this was 8.30 in the morning on a 7 to 3 shift. My next patient was a sore throat, so I went to go see an 8-year-old with a sore throat. But throughout the day, ambulance would bring in more, and the nurses and I, and they would look at me like, what just happened? And startled. And I was like, it's okay. It's okay. We're okay. But it wasn't long after that I started an EMS Bible study for us, because EMS workers have a lot of PTSD issues. I had a 10-year-old boy who flipped a gator. If you don't know what that is, it's like a big SUV or um, four-wheeler. They lived on a farm, and he had flipped it, and it landed on top of him and crushed him. Mom's inside the house cooking and had no idea this was happening until the dad came home and found him. So they called the ambulance, and the EMS said, you know, he's, we think he was already dead, but they were so hysterical, we went ahead and started CPR, loaded him to get out of there. Um, sometimes you just have to do that because the family needs you to, to they, they need to see that you tried everything. So he came in, we resuscitated um, less than an hour. I stopped it fairly quickly because I knew that he wasn't, he wasn't uh, going to be resuscitated. So then I had to go talk to the, his, his dad and his mother and his 13-year-old sister. And we often put them in a family room so they have some privacy when we're talking to them. And they were in the quad away from us. We had a four-quad ER. So I'd walk down this long hall toward them, and they wouldn't stay in the room. Then The, the um, social worker was trying to keep them in the room, but they were just so anxious and agitated and upset about the whole thing. So they're in the hall, and I'm walking towards them, and the dad kept looking at me and saying, is he dead? Is he dead? And I was trying to wait so I could get him in the room where it was, would be quieter. But the third time he asked me, I just didn't feel like knowing he was that I could not answer him. So I nodded. And the screams of agony are horrible. And you just remember those. And you, you suffer with them along all of these things. 
and you, they keep you up at night. Most of the time, I could, it would affect me for two or three nights, and then I'd gradually let it go and be able to move on. Sometimes it'd take longer. In one of those times when I had two children burn victims, and they were both being resuscitated, a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old, and um, I went to intubate the 10-year-old. And when we do that, their bed's here, and you're at the head of the bed, and you hold their neck up to get their chin up more, and you kind of use your hand to push the top of the head down so you can get them in a good position to put the airway in. And his skin just sloughed off when I did that, and it just made me sick. But yet you're still working. You still have to keep going. And um, so I had to go talk to the mother, and the mother said, well, my boyfriend and I were watching TV. They're in a single-wide trailer. And um, we saw the TV start to spark, and the curtain caught on fire. So we ran out of the trailer. And then they went around to the back where the kids were at, banging on the windows. I was livid. I was furious. I kept saying, what kind of mother would not go get their kids before they ran out? But yet, I, she checked in. I had to take care of her in some minor elbow pain. I could hardly look at her. I said, we'll get an x-ray. And I went back, and I said, your x-ray's fine. Here's your paperwork. You can take Motrin or Tylenol. And I left. I could not, not talk to her. And it was funny, because um, we don't see them very often, but the Red Cross was there. And um, so they were sort of helping with the family and friends, whoever were there with them. And a, a nurse friend of mine, older and wiser than me at the time, she came up beside me. And we just stood there kind of watching that. And she said, you know, I'm thankful the Red Cross is here because none of us could do that. I think that was the hardest thing I ever had to, to get over. It took me a lot longer than two or three nights. I think some of that was anger behind it, which diffused pretty quickly, and then just the utter sadness of what had happened. And then there was an elderly couple. They were walking they had been to this big family reunion, Christmas season, big family reunion, dinner together for the holidays, I'm sure. And as they were leaving this elderly couple, the grandparents were walking across the side street, and the rest was over here, and they were hit by a car. I took care of the husband, and one of my partners took care of the wife, who didn't survive. Um, and he did have some pelvic fractures and stuff, and I needed to get scans and all the trauma stuff that we do. So I didn't tell him. His wife had died right away because I wanted him to be able to lie still and cooperate so we could get his work up done. And then I went in and talked with the family, and um, it's very interesting to me to look at family dynamics in the ER when someone's going through a crisis. But there was a daughter-in-law. There were probably 15 people in there. And this daughter-in-law was clearly the alpha of the family. She was, like, all over it, you know, and she's like, we want to be there when you tell them, which I'm completely fine with. So I went in to talk to him. Um, afterwards, and I'm standing beside the stretcher, and the Alpha family member is kind of right behind my shoulder, and I said, and I just said to him, I need to talk to you about your wife, and he started crying, and I said, I'm so sorry, but she died, and he said, I just lost the love of my life, and started to cry, and then from over my shoulder, this woman just pushes me out of the way, and she's like, Daddy, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Everything's just going to be fine. I saw Mama. She's fine. And we all looked at her because <laughs> I just told her Mama had died. And she said, she's in a better place. And, um, and so we just all let it go. And we left the family alone. The social worker stayed in there. Um, but I thought about that while preparing this talk because that's what a lot of us want to do. That's completely our culture 
is we want to skip to the better part. We don't want to go through the suffering. She wanted to move right on from, oh, this is a tragedy, but you're going to be fine. And I, there's just no way to do that. But um, I think if you try and do that, you also miss the blessing. Because in that suffering, you learn so much and you grow so close to Christ. So all those sleepless nights I had and all those times I'd cry myself to sleep over what had happened, I could feel the presence of the Lord. And, in, and I remember in the early years, I'd be like, why do you let this happen? How come this happened? It's not fair. And I noticed over the years in transition as, as I grieved what I did for a living, that I quit asking that so much. And I was just more, I just need you here with me. I need you to grieve with me. I just need you. I just need your presence. And it brought me to Philippians 3.10. Actually, it's 2.10, I think. 3.10. Let me look. 2.10. Yeah, it is 310. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, so that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And I understood that this whole time I was fellowshipping in my suffering with my Abba, which I needed. And I really wished I didn't have that job sometimes. But the gifting that God has given me was for this particular field of medicine. When these tragedies and calamities would strike, I would just have this sudden calm come over me. And my mind would think, and I would just be the calm in the middle of this chaos. And I don't know why. It's not anything I could create or generate on my own. It was the spirit in me, and that's what God had called for me. There were times when I begged God not to make me still be a doctor. But he always reassured me and affirmed that he, I was right where he wanted me to be. I was walking within the will of God for my life. And a commentary about this, the scripture says that there is a partnership or a deep commune of suffering that every believer shares with Christ, who is able to comfort suffering Christians because he had already experienced it. We all know Christ suffered and died for the purpose of our redemption. And we can learn from Paul in scripture too, um, especially in Philippians, where he had the same purpose. He died not for our redemption, but so that we may know of redemption. And so that's how we are as believers too. We, if we are being obedient to Christ, we will help make the gospel known. My church used to always say, and my home church says, and I'm encouraging you to do this, do what you're good at for the glory of God, somewhere strategic for the mission of God. And we all have different giftings. But the other thing I thought about more and more, as I guess because it's Easter season also, is that God not only wanted to fellowship with us in our suffering, but he wanted us to fellowship with him through his suffering. And this is the season we typically do that. So I want to take a moment for us to pause, get our hearts settled, focus on Christ's suffering, while I read this. It is reasonable to assume that Jesus was in very good health prior to his crucifixion. He ate a very healthy Mediterranean diet. He worked as a carpenter, 
which can be physically demanding, and walked a lot throughout the area during his ministry. The suffering of Jesus began before he was hung on the cross. Jesus enjoyed the Passover meal with his disciples in an upper room in Jerusalem. Jesus was well aware of what was to come, as evidenced by his teaching to his disciples. I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Luke 22:15 and 16. It is unlikely Jesus was able to eat much given his stress over what he knew was to come. During this Passover meal, Jesus gave the first communion predicting his body and blood would be given. Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26, 26 through 28. After leaving the upper room in which he likely had a heavy heart after predicting that one of his disciples would betray him, Jesus went outside the city to the Garden of Gethsemane. There he spent hours in prayer. We know that Jesus was in anguish by Luke's report. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground, Luke 22:44. The medical term for this is hematidrosis, which has been seen in patients who have experienced extreme stress or shock. The tiny capillaries around the sweat pores became fragile and leaked blood into sweat. This likely also rendered his skin particularly sensitive, which would make his scourging to come even more painful. Yet Jesus was able to pray, Abba, Father. He said, All things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Mark 14, 36. While in the garden, Jesus was betrayed by Judas with a kiss and arrested. His disciples abandoned him. Then all the disciples de deserted him and fled. Matthew 26, 56. Jesus was brought back to the city to the court of the high priests. He was questioned by Annas, then brought to Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin, who sought to put Jesus to death. The palace guards who spat on him, beat him, slapped him, ridiculed Jesus. After a long sleepless night without food, the Sanhedrin sentenced Jesus to death. Because the Jews were not able to carry out an execution in the Romans' word, Jesus was brought to Pilate. Pilate sent Jesus on to Herod after finding nothing wrong. Jesus was speechless before Herod. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Isaiah 53, 7. Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate. Pilate was unable to convince the crowds of Jesus' innocence. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Mark 15, 15. Prior to crucifixion, Jesus had to undergo scourging. This is after a long sleepless night and likely little food the evening before. It is during this time that Jesus suffers a severe physical beating in which he was flogged. A victim is tied to a post exposing his back and is struck repeatedly with a whip that has a flagrum or flagellum. This consisted of multiple pieces of bone or metal attached to a number of leather strands. The initial blows tear through the skin and into the subcutaneous tissues, causing the small capillaries to bleed. With repeated blows, they penetrate deeper into the subcutaneous tissue and muscle mass, causing increased bleeding as it tears larger blood vessels. Extreme blood loss typically occurs, weakening the victim. After this, Jesus was handed over to be crucified. 
They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him, took the staff, and kept hitting him on the head. Matthew 27, 28 through 30. The thorns on his crown were likely one to two inches long. The repeated blows to Jesus' head would have driven the thorns into his scalp and face, one of the most vascular areas of the human body, along with the blows themselves, which would have caused a large amount of bleeding. I gave my back to those who beat me, and my cheeks to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from scorn and spinning. Isaiah 56. In Isaiah's prophecies, he described how Jesus looked at the end of the scourging and beating. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. Isaiah 52, 14. The Bible does not tell us the severity of Jesus' beating, but it is suspected that it was particularly harsh given this description and that Jesus was unable to continue alone as he walked from here about 650 yards to Golgotha. He was unable to make the walk carrying his own patabellum or crossbar which probably weighed between 80 and 110 pounds, and he would have carried this across his shoulders. A man named Siren from Cyrene, who carried his patabellum for him, assisted Jesus. Jesus was then taken to the cross. His patabellum was laid on the ground. Using nails about seven inches long and a diameter of one centimeter, these were driven in the wrists. This is the location of the median canal in which the median nerve runs through along with the tendons of the hand. As a nail was driven in, this would have transected the median nerve, causing a searing pain radiating throughout his arms. Dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Psalm 22:16. The patabellum was then lifted to, onto the stipe, or upright bar, which stood about seven feet high. The feet were then nailed to the stipe. To allow for this, the knees were bent and rotated laterally. My servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Isaiah 52:13. When his cross was erected, there was a tremendous strain put on his wrists, arms, and shoulders. As Jesus, as Jesus hung on the cross, his muscles began to fatigue, resulting in dislocations of the shoulder and elbow joints. With arms held in a fixed upward and outward position, it made breathing difficult. And as his intercostal and pectoral muscles were stretched... This caused a fixed end inspiration, making exhaling difficult. It would be impossible to take a deep breath. This would cause him to take very shallow breaths. In order to exhale better, Jesus would have to push up with his feet, causing searing pain in the feet, nailed to the cross, as well as scraping and reopening the wounds on his back. This would allow him to take a deeper breath and exhalation. As his leg muscles fatigued, Jesus would fall back down, causing searing pain in his hands and arms. Remaining in this position for hours would also cause multiple muscle cramps and spasms. As Jesus struggled to breathe with short, shallow breath, his lungs would develop atelectasis or small areas of collapse. He would have suffered from hypoxia or lack of oxygen as well as hypercapnia or a carbon dioxide buildup, which led to a respiratory acidosis. This would eventually cause heart failure and allowed fluid to build up within the lung and outside the lung. Death by crucifixion is the death of suffocation. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melting within me. Psalm 22:14. 14. 
Not only did Jesus endure extreme physical suffering before his death, he also endured separation from God or spiritual death. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46. The average time of suffering before death by crucifixion was typically two to four days. The relative quickness of Jesus' death could be due to the particularly harsh scourging he likely endured. It could also be that Jesus gave up his life on his own accord. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Luke 23, 46. To hasten a person's death, the soldiers would typically break the legs of the victim such that they could not push up to assist their breathing. Jesus did not require this since he died before they went to do this. This allowed Jesus to fulfill the requirements of the Passover lamb that none of its bones be broken. It is to be eaten in one house. You may not take any of the meat outside the house. You may not break any of its bones. Exodus 12:46. To confirm death, a Roman soldier would pierce through the chest into the right heart with a spear. When this was done to Jesus, a flow of muddy water came from his body. This is possible from pleural fluid accumulated in the thoracic cavity, as well as possibly the pericardium and blood from the ventricle. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. John 19:34. Jesus prayed earlier, back in the Garden of Gethsemane, Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will, in Mark 14:36, And he was finished. God made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So yeah, some of the things he asked us to go through in our obedience are difficult. But in that suffering, there is such fellowship that we can truly experience the joy of his resurrection and our chance to be with him. So I think it's good. This is a heavy topic, I know, and I think this is a perfect time in the Easter season to do it. This is definitely not a Sunday morning. Easter Sunday service, sermon. But I think it's important over the next couple weeks to not gloss over the suffering. Like, is it Oral Roberts who does that video with the really deep voice in it? And it's Friday, and the clouds are gathering. And he keeps saying, and then he keeps going, keep saying, but Sunday's coming. We can't skip to Sunday without at least pondering what Jesus went through for us and maybe what he's asking us to go through for him. But like he told Joshua, be strong and courageous, for I will go with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray. Father, Abba, I want to pray to you in this season of remembering the hardest parts of what you did for us. And even the things that we have had to suffer through, that you would help us remember to seek you in those moments. To celebrate the resurrection and, and what you did for us. And as much as we've discussed how much you humbled yourself, even to the point of death and death on a cross for us, I want to pray scripture over you and finish your hymn. For this reason also, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God our Father. Amen.